Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. All right, now we're going to do some Bible teaching. If you need a copy of the Bible, please throw up a hand. We have a couple of volunteers here in the back who are going to bring a Bible to you if you need one. Everybody who's already got their Bible, digital or otherwise, go ahead and turn to Book of John, chapter 9. If you're new to the Bible, turn and where your table of contents says the New Testament and go to John, it's the fourth book down. Go to a New Testament and then the fourth book down, you'll, you'll find a page number for the Gospel of John. Today is the ninth and final part of our series, Divided Crowd, Undivided Savior, where we see the reason the crowd is divided is everyone's trying to figure out what they think of Jesus. Is he actually the Messiah? Is he something special? Is he a liar? What's going on? What did the religious elite believe about him? Weren't they trying to kill him, but they're not silencing him? What's going on? Everyone's making up their mind except Jesus. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's doing, and you see this every page of the Gospels. I'm going to read. This story takes up an entire chapter, so we've been moving in small chunks sometimes, but here, chapter 9, we're going to do the entire chapter because it's just one story of a man who was born blind and is healed by Jesus, and then all the controversy that flows out of it. So today's sermon title, It's the Blind Who Can See. And I apologize, I didn't produce sermon notes. I'm going to email these out to the church probably Monday or Tuesday. You'll get these through email so that you have this. But those of you that love note-taking, maybe write in the margins of your Bible. I'm going to read chapter 9 in its entirety. We'll read it together. And then I'm going to share a few ideas that stood out to me this week from this story. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who'd been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am that same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, 
but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leader still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him, he's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been born blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked, how did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Holy Spirit, please teach us your word this morning. Give us understanding that we could joyfully obey whatever it is you have for us to obey. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, amen. Four thoughts from the text, and frankly, from associated texts. Again, I'm gonna email this out later this week. Some of these are a little bit wordy, but I didn't know how to make them any shorter. First, not everyone who gets a miracle puts their faith in Jesus. But ARCF seeks to provide those miracles for those who will. Let me say it again. Not everyone who gets a miracle puts their faith in Jesus. But ARCF seeks to provide those miracles for those who will. So it is critical that I point this out. This is a story where a guy um, 
comes to faith in Jesus, we see him worshiping at the end of the story, but when did he get physical sight? At the beginning of the story, okay? Um, there are a lot of nonsense preachers out there right now on television and online saying that you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. Their uh, abusive theology is trying to say that if you trusted God with your whole heart, God would, you know, like a genie, he would give you what it is you need or what you want. But this man receives physical healing up front. And we're gonna talk later about his journey that even then, he's slow in the various conversations. He comes around to a place where he does believe that Jesus is the son of God. And that comes much later. Um, there are places in the scripture where there's a, there are 10 people, 10 men that have a contagious skin disease, leprosy, and Jesus heals all 10 of them, and only one of them comes back to praise him, worship him, and say thank you. And Jesus points it out, where are the other nine? There are nine men in that instance that received physical healing, but did not have a new heart from which they worshiped God, and so, like, what's the point to have your body be more physically healthy and healed, but you're not reconciled to God, you're not gonna spend your eternity with God, what's the point? So it's critical that we know that physical healing, God uses it, Jesus used it in particular during his own ministry, not to, as an end of itself. He was not operating like a physician of, hey, I just want to heal your body and then I'm gonna move on. No, he was looking to reconcile not just that person to God, but anybody who watched. So miracles were often, the purpose was for everyone who could see that this could be something that births faith inside the heart. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes miracles are how God gets us to a place where we finally see him for who he is and, and it creates faith, but not always. And then the second part of the sentence that I put in there, and this is gonna get really practical. If you love Jesus, you call ARCF your church home your practical app in this sermon is coming up front. The second sentence, part of the sentence was this, but ARCF seeks to provide miracles for those who will believe in Jesus. We do not say Jesus' ministry was a ministry of power and some people believe, but you know what? A lot of people didn't believe, so really what was the point? Wasn't Jesus wasting his energy? No, we would never say that. Jesus' ministry model was perfect because he was perfect. He, he is wisdom embodied. He has all knowledge. He has perfect love of God. The, the, we're not gonna sit here and critique Jesus' ministry model. And he said of the church, you'll do greater things than this. And we sometimes don't know what to do with that because we don't feel like we walk in the same power. We don't feel like I can just say to this stone, be thrown into the sea. Um, so, we, but I guess I'd say it this way, just because we're in a faith crisis over how to manifest the ministry or maybe we are gonna keep studying scripture and, and try to gain more understanding of what that ministry looks like. We should never ever come to the place where we say miracles don't exist because I prayed for a miracle and God said no in that circumstance that I'm just gonna give up instead of trusting his wisdom and his sovereignty that sometimes he healed. Even when Jesus was on earth, he did not heal everybody. That's critical that we understand that. He healed some people some of the time but the purpose was always to create faith in others. So if we, 2,000 years later, the ARCF Church family, if we want to do whatever we can to help Citrus Heights believe in Jesus, I wanna talk about four different types of miracles. Um, for me, it's just a little bullet-pointed list. It's gonna be, we're gonna talk about prayer, serving, um, 
spiritual discussions, specifically about the Bible, and then sharing the gospel of who Jesus is. We're gonna talk, I wanna talk briefly about each of these four things and the ways that they can engender faith. So one miracle that we can seek today as 21st century Christians is through prayer, appealing directly to God who is above the whole physical universe and asking him to heal just the same kind of miracles that Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago. Ask him to do it. Um, one of our very first vision statement is that we would be a people defined by prayer. We wouldn't think of doing anything without first seeking our Father's guidance and wisdom. Lord, what should we do? Asking God in 2020 or whatever year that you happen to be watching this uh, online, asking God now to do something miraculous is a perfectly viable and fully biblical method to showing God's power to somebody who does not yet believe who Jesus is. That's a perfectly reasonable. We don't think oftentimes of our friend being sick that this is a tool of evangelism, but what did Jesus just say? Your bad theology, him being a sinner, his parents being a sinner, that's not why he's sick. That's not why he's blind. He's been blind for decades so that God can reveal his power right now in this moment. Asking God to heal somebody is an evangelistic opportunity. It is a chance to show the world what God can do. Maybe God chooses to say yes. Maybe God does not choose to say yes. It's in his hands. But it's something that in the scriptures we are commanded to do. Ask him. We don't have because we don't ask. Secondly, serving total strangers because of God's love. Um, our third core value is that we serve God and people. In a culture right now that is so overladen with self-centeredness, um, to serve others, especially to serve somebody who's a total stranger, serving is a type of miracle unto itself. It, goes, it blows the mind of the average person of why were you so kind to me? Why did you, you didn't have to do that. And this is one of the ways that scripture says uh, in loving one another, practically inside the family of faith, but loving the stranger the way that the Good Samaritan did. Um, selfless acts of service and love are a type of miracle that testify to who God is. Miracles don't always result in faith, but they can. They don't always result in faith, but they can. So serving people is a, a second way. Third, spiritual conversations about the miracles that God already did. So if you love Jesus and you've loved him for a while, you've probably gotten a chance to make your way through this cool book we recommend around here called The Bible. There are a lot of miracles in there and some of those miracles, um, I know I sound like a, a broken record here, but some of these things are really critical conversations for people who are exploring faith. Um, there are many uh, young people today that genuinely believe that the God of the Old Testament was this angry and vengeful God and Jesus was only ever nice and fluffy and essentially believe that there are two different deities. And if somebody, and maybe it's you who's listening, if you're wrestling with this or something like it or why would God be such a jerk to slaughter the Amalekites, there are so many miracles related to God's mercy and provision around these things. He's patient with Pharaoh, even in the midst of the miracles revealing his power. You see, the miracles of how God smashed Pharaoh, they show how strong Yahweh is. 
The God of the Bible shows how strong he is. But the fact that God sends Moses to issue warnings in between shows us the mercy and patience of that exact same God. And if you and I are Christians here in 2020, one of the miracles we can testify to is knowing our Bible well so that the friend, the coworker, the family member, the neighbor that's got some wrestling going on, asking questions about Christianity, there are miracles that I need to point you toward. And maybe the question that you've got is a miracle that happened in the book of Judges. Maybe that's something that could really help you and serve you right now. And I cannot serve you in that way if I don't know what God did. So I'm, I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth here right now. If you uh, are exploring who Jesus is, I want to let you know there are 66 books to this Bible and every component is revealing part of who God is. You don't know where you might find your answer. So I wanna encourage you to dig into the word, dig into the Bible. Those of you, those of us who are Christians, please, please, please study and love and cherish your Bible because there's a miracle in there that might just be the key that unlocks the heart of your friend. They're really trying. Some of us have been told flat out by people, I want to be a Christian, but. And they've got this one hang up. And, and they, all they really needed was a Christian friend who goes, oh, I know the answer to that. There's, there's a miracle right here where God does something amazing that shows his character and answers that question. Those spirit-ordained spiritual conversations are one way that miracles are presented. Things that are uh, just as true today as they were back then the parting of the Red Sea still means something, can mean something to somebody in 2020 who does not yet love God, okay? God's patience with Naaman the leper can still absolutely mean something to somebody in 2020 who does not yet know and love God. These miracles still matter and they can still reveal faith. That's why the Holy Spirit wrote a book and gave us the book. And then fourth, proclaiming the gospel, the ultimate miracle of Christ dying on the cross in our place and then defeating death on the third day, raising himself from the grave. That miracle, Romans 1.16, amongst other places, tells us is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to make my heart alive, taking me from spiritual death to spiritual life, giving me a heart that loves God, that trusts God. These miracles... Um, they can, I can experience them, I can hear them, I should say, and I may not respond in faith. I might say that's a fairy tale. That might, but you and I, if we're Christians, we do not know. We do not know what friend or neighbor or coworker, maybe you listening right now, who's exploring faith, I don't ever know when I show you the beauty of who God is, the power of who God is, I don't know how you're gonna respond. I'm not God. And it's not my job, it is not my calling to control other people. First uh, Corinthians says it this way. Some people throw seed out into the field and others water the seed, but only God brings the growth. That's another way of saying, Christians, you love and serve everybody around you. You be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. You tell anybody who's willing to listen about the strength and power and mercy of God, especially through the cross of Jesus Christ. You throw that seed and you water that seed you don't have any control over the outcome. Each individual person is gonna respond how they respond. Back to the original point. Not everyone who gets a miracle puts their faith in Jesus. You can see it just in the Gospel of John itself. 
Not everybody who gets a miracle or even who sees a miracle, witnesses a miracle. The Pharisees, right? Divided crowd. You've got this divided crowd. They're all seeing the same miracles and they respond in different ways. And, and the reason I belabor the point again is there are some people out there trying to say that miracles and faith always go together and the Bible simply just does not teach that. Um, so as a church family, I want to encourage us, ARCF, we must be a people defined by prayer. We are asking God for miracles, not because he is doing cheap party tricks or we want to see something cool. We are asking for physical miracles so that they will have spiritual fruit. We want our friends and family members to know Jesus for who he is. We want our city to know Jesus for who he is. Secondly, we're going to be a people who serves God and serves people because servanthood, for some, is a miracle unto itself. It reveals the character of Jesus. Third, we're going to get into the Word of God and know our Bible so that we have an answer and an opportune time for a friend who's really digging and struggling with who God is. And fourth, we're going to make sure to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anybody who's willing to listen because there is no miracle like an empty tomb. There's no miracle like my enemy going to a cross for me. Wait, I was his enemy. Why would he do that for me? That's the greatest miracle in the whole world. My second thought out of this text. When you don't believe in Jesus, but find yourself asking new questions and seeking new answers, it may be that God is drawing you toward him. When you don't believe in Jesus, but you find yourself asking new questions and seeking new answers, it may be that God is drawing you toward him. So what I want to extrapolate here is this story is this guy says some different things about Jesus throughout the text. It's really interesting. So let's see. I should have highlighted these. Verse 11. Well, verse 10, who healed you? What happened? Verse 11, the, blind man, the formerly blind man. The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over. So as of verse 11, and he's already been healed, mind you. As of verse 11, in this guy's heart, Jesus is a man. This is critical. John, who wrote this down, this is on purpose. This is not, this is not willy-nilly. Jesus is a man. Verse 16 is where the Pharisees, also calling him a man, this man Jesus is not from God. Verse 17, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. That's a huge step up, especially in this culture. Now you're, you're willing to say, this is a guy appointed by God speaking the words of God. That's a huge step up from just saying he's a man. Um, the struggle with parents, them being afraid. An assertion in verse 24, we know this guy, this Jesus is a sinner. Verse 25, so back to the man who used to be blind. Verse 25, I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. Now at verse 25, he is willing to cast doubt on whether or not Jesus is a sinner. This is a huge claim in a religious culture. He's saying it is possible 
that he's not just a prophet, he might be morally perfect. What I'm trying to show you is that this guy is on a spiritual journey. He's already received his healing, he's already had his, his physical and relational interaction with Jesus, but spiritually, he's coming to a, a different place, a different place. He, I don't know whether he's a sinner, okay? Verse 27, we're seeing some boldness. This is very interesting for somebody who doesn't profess faith. Faith. Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? So he's got a boldness now of, of basically calling baloney on the religious elite going, look, you're asking me the same questions all over again. And he's almost, he's kind of sassing them. Like, you want to be disciples of Jesus? Why is it you're so excited to hear the story all over again? What's your problem? I already told you the truth. This boldness stands in stark contrast with the fear of his parents. His parents don't want to get tossed out of the synagogue, tossed out of all that Judaism is. And he's in a place now where he's like, ah. He's got a boldness where he's, he's leaning in his behavior where he'd rather cast his lot with Jesus than with everything he's ever known about religion. The Pharisees being a good Jewish boy and being at every Sabbath, being, being there for your prayer times and scripture readings uh, at synagogue. His parents are terrified and they're gonna cast their lot on the side of silence. He's got so much boldness at this point, he'd rather be perhaps in the same hot water that Jesus is in. Very interesting. And then they uh, tackle him. Oh, verse 33. That's very strange. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? Okay? That's a rhetorical question. He is now saying that this Jesus comes from God. I'm not just open to the idea of him being a prophet. I'm not open, just open to the idea that maybe he is sinless. I'm not just willing to take risks to defend him. Come on now. This is logical. He's from God. He healed my eyes. Verse 31. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is uh, ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. So it makes a very bold and logical argument. This guy has to be from God. And they get mad at him and throw him out of synagogue. But then... Where does the spiritual journey, where's the spiritual trajectory? Verse 35, Jesus finds him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? So we've talked about this before, but in case you're a guest, I want to bring you along. Believe in, meaning putting your total trust in the person and work of Jesus. Like, do you believe I am the Messiah that Yahweh sent? That's the full uh, magnitude of the question. Do you believe I am the Messiah that Yahweh sent? The man answered, where is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And that's a whole other sermon unto itself. If that is true, that is amazing. The desire is there. That's amazing. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe. Verse 38, Lord, is that different than verse 11, man? Say yes. Verse 11, he's a man. Later, he's a prophet. Later, he might be morally perfect. Later, come on, guys, you know he's from God. He healed me. And now, yes, Lord, I believe. The second half of verse 38, what happens? Right there in your text. 
What's the second half of verse 38? What happens? And he worshiped Jesus. Now, this is odd if you've been around the Bible for a while. If you grew up in Sunday school, you have heard plenty of accounts where angels show up to deliver some message and they are so beautiful and majestic and powerful, they create awe, they create terror. They have to say over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not. And many times they have to say, do not worship me. I am not God. And Jesus, at the end of verse 38, is being worshiped. And does he stop the man from worshiping him? No, he does not. We gotta wrestle with this. He does not stop him. If the Pharisees are right, this is blasphemy. If the secular humanists are right, Jesus is the most arrogant human being to have ever walked the face of the earth. He was not a good moral teacher. He was not a nice guy. He was arrogant as all get out if he was a liar. He allows people to worship him. Wow. So to the second point, if you're not a Christian, but you find yourself reading the Bible, it's possible that God is calling to you. If you're not a Christian, but you find yourself attending church, it's possible that God is calling you toward himself. If you're not a Christian, but you find yourself spending more and more time with your Christian friend at work and asking her spiritual questions, it might be that God is calling you toward himself, okay? There's so much behavior in this story, and yet there is not worship until the end. This man goes through all these steps that we just talked about, and it's at the end where he worships. He sees Jesus fully for who he is, believes Jesus fully for who he is, and worships him rightly as God. Sometimes when you're asking new questions and you're demanding new answers, you're on this journey, it's because God is at work in your life and he's calling you toward him. Third, genuine faith creates boldness and sets our priorities straight. Genuine faith creates boldness and sets our priorities straight. Oh man, you guys are happy I'm not in the room right now. Ooh, my throat hurts. There was a man in 1989 driving across the Bay Bridge, just down the road here. And didn't know what was going on. His car inexplicably moved one direction, even though he didn't turn the wheel, didn't know what was going on. Before he realizes it, oh, there's an earthquake. And frantically stops, gets out of the car, and when the rumbling stops, he sees that about 100 feet in front of his car, the top section of the Bay Bridge has fallen out. And he is there as other cars have 
fallen off and people are presumably dying or being terribly injured. And so he does what he can. He's frantically waving his arms at any cars that go by, but um, I guess some people survived because they later reported, but presumably, maybe, I don't know, people are afraid of the chaos and terror and don't know if they're going to get robbed or whatever, but there were people who ignored him and went, uh, you know, went past him and, felt, and drove off this edge, possibly to their death. But at some point, he looks up and he sees a school bus coming, and he decides that he has to just lay it all on the line, uh, and he frantically waves, and the school bus isn't stopping, and he just plays a, a game of chicken that he really can't win, and he decides to stay in the middle of the road, waving his arms. He's not going to move for this school bus, and it finally, the bus driver gives in and slows down, and from his open window, he's able to yell at them and says, the bridge is out had the earthquake took out the bridge. There is no bridge ahead. And there were some 30 or 40 kids on this bus, I guess, um, or I, maybe it was a city bus, I don't know. But the point was, a number of lives were saved because this guy just had to make a decision and just say, I'm not moving from this spot. I, I'm going to flag this bus driver down. How do you get that kind of boldness See, this guy saw with his own eyes the bridge out. It wasn't a theory. It wasn't something he had been told by a slick salesperson. He witnessed it himself. And he got a little time to think about it as people were driving by and falling off the side and feel the emotional magnitude of people going to their death because they won't believe him or they don't trust a stranger enough to roll down a window and ask whatever and, he, and when he saw a bus, that was just too much for him. Where does boldness come from? Except a very, very strong conviction. He had 100% faith that anybody who drove off of that was almost certainly dead. And it was a very reasonable faith. It's very reasonable to believe that. A drop that big is going to not do you any blessing. And so it gave him boldness. From that boldness... He set his priorities straight. I will risk life and limb to stand here and wave my arms in front of the bus because there's more to life than just me surviving. I can't live with myself if I don't get this bus to stop. And we saw that in the life of this man born blind. It's really hard to overstate how emotionally, societally, and spiritually uh, significant it is to be threatened with being thrown out of synagogue. Um, because you see, for them, Judaism is not just like a religion. Like Some of us treat religion like the thing you do just on Sundays. It's an add-on to your existence. Uh, the Bible calls that blasphemy, by the way. But they did not treat it that way. Judaism was who they were. They all considered themselves sons of Abraham. So it was, he wasn't just a religious leader, like the head of their faith. He was the head of their people. Everybody could tie their identity to one of the 12 tribes. They were an ethnic group, a political identity. They used to have their own kings, used to have their own armies, their own religion, their own God. To be kicked out of synagogue is bigger than you and I could possibly imagine. Today, if you do something that is so bad that the pastors say you cannot be a part of this church fellowship anymore, you're unrepentant of your sin and 
the scriptures say that a little leaven leavens the whole dough. You're not repentant, and everyone else in the church is gonna learn that sin's not really a big problem, and they don't need to be repentant either. We've gotta get rid of you. It's really the unrepentance that's kicked out of church. It's not the original sin, the sin that was before that. But if a group of pastors said you couldn't be here anymore, um, your life goes on. That didn't change your family, it didn't change where you work, and you just go down the street to another church and just show up there the next Sunday and join the church and move on. So we can't even wrap our minds around how catastrophic this would be. Not only are his parents cowering in fear from the fear of being kicked out of synagogue, he himself is kicked out of synagogue in verse 34. He is kicked out of society, he's kicked out of his religion, he's kicked out of his cultural identity. And then Jesus finds him and what happens? He worships Jesus. So the implication, this is intense. John is implying that in the worship of Jesus, this man gets all of these things back. He gets head to toe an entirely new identity by worshiping God, worshiping him rightly. You can let go of all these secondary things no matter how big they seem. When you worship Jesus, there's gonna be a reshuffling this man has a boldness that comes from genuine faith. He believes that there's something. This, this guy is something. Maybe he's a prophet. And then he's thinking about it more. And he's like, no, that just does, that's not enough. He, he might not even be a sinner. Maybe he's something more. Gosh, you know, how, how could he have given me eyes that can see unless he was from God? Like every drop of this is genuine faith. It's just that the faith is going up in magnitude. It's a faith placed in bigger and bigger ideas as he wrestles with what happened. Genuine faith creates boldness and it sets our priorities straight. Let that be an encouragement to all of us. Raise your hand. Anybody ever felt like your priorities were not straight? Oh my goodness. And yet we know that if we believed in our bones, those of us who are Christians, if we believed that the central narrative of 2020 is Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners, if I really believed that that was what the world was all about in 2020, man, that would set my priorities straight. Man, that would give me a boldness to be investing my time and energy and prayers and words and money in the things I ought to be investing in instead of worrying about so many secondary identities. Fourth thing that I'd like to share from the text today. Admitting spiritual blindness is the path to forgiveness. Admitting spiritual blindness is the path to forgiveness. In the world of YouTube videos, this is really easy to piece together. So this last May, um, many of you know, the Kaiser family moved from one house to another. And in the move, all of a sudden, I had a couple of lawns to be responsible for. So I go over to Lowe's, pick up a lawnmower, get it back to the house, And I work on assembling this thing. And there was a part of the handle that for the life of me, I could not figure out what's going on. The handle is just too low. There's no way the handle's actually this short. What's going on? So I type it into YouTube. 
like every good millennial, it's nice. You put in the exact, the exact uh, brand, the brand and the product number, and videos pop up of people who know what they're doing. Yay, isn't it nice <laughs> to hear from somebody who knows what they're doing at times when you're lost and you're stuck? And the first video, and this, you guys know where this is going, the very first video has millions of views and you know, tens of thousands of likes, but the picture is of like a 10-year-old boy standing next to this lawnmower that I have here in my garage, and I can't figure out how to get it together. And so I immediately, just this flood of emotion, is like, Greg, are you gonna swallow your pride and let a 10-year-old teach you how to use this lawnmower? Because if there are 30,000 people that have clicked like on this video, the kid obviously knows his stuff. There's no way around it. And it's a six and a half minute video, so it's not long. I have no excuses. Greg, just tap on the screen. Just do it. So I tapped on the screen. <laughs> and let me tell you, this 10-year-old, was he took his lawnmowers very seriously. <laughs> he was very matter-of-fact, very professional. Today I'm going to tell you guys about thus and such model, blah, 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 just like an adult would do. It was hilarious. Um, but halfway through the video, he did something with, I forget what it was, but what he did with the lawnmower showed me what it was that I was missing. And I go, oh my gosh, that's amazing or whatever. And that's the only problem that I had. So I didn't watch the rest of the video. I gave him a thumbs up because he totally earned it. And then I was okay. It, it solved the handle issue and everything was fine with the lawnmower. But a 35-year-old had to listen to a 10-year-old about a lawnmower. Ouch. Is that fun? It's fun if you're the 10-year-old. How cool would that be? You're like, oh man, people triple my age are learning from me, that's cool. But if you're the 35-year-old, is that fun? Is that a highlight? Is that a story you're gonna tell to hundreds of people? Oh wait, that's normally not a story you tell to hundreds of people. But here's the point. Um, Jesus already told us in the Beatitudes of the Gospel of Matthew um, the people who really are the ones who receive the blessing, they're the ones that know that they are not spiritually adequate on their own. They know they're sinners. They know they need the mercy of God. Those are the ones who are blessed. Some translations call it the poor in spirit. Jesus says you are so blessed if you could just figure out spiritually you're gonna need help outside of yourself. You're so blessed if you could figure that one. You're so blessed. Look at these last couple of verses. Read with me starting at 39. I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those that think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying that we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And then the story ends. That is not a Walt Disney ending at all. That's a tragic ending. It's an incredible ending for the man who used to be blind. He ends worshiping. This is actually, I would argue, a picture of heaven and hell in one chapter. The minority ends up worshiping. The majority, Jesus says, I wasn't able to help you because you insisted stubbornly that you had everything spiritually that you needed. 
Yeah, we can see. Yeah, we're not blind. We have it all together. We don't need Jesus. We don't need a Savior. We don't need a Messiah. We don't need forgiveness is ultimately this claim. To say that you're spiritually broken is to say, I'm not morally perfect. I need someone to wash away my sin. I need forgiveness. Back to the point itself. Admitting spiritual blindness is the path to forgiveness. If you're a Christian, you and I, we need to be reminded of this. Admitting spiritual blindness, man, that's still the path forward. Even though now we believe by the Holy Spirit we can see reality, we can see Jesus for who he is, we still have to admit that he is our daily bread. We need him so desperately every day. But the main thrust of this passage, and really all of the Gospel of John, is to people who uh, are not, have not yet decided who they think Jesus is or what he is. And this message is to you. If you're willing right now, as you listen to my voice, if you're willing to say, I am not morally perfect, I have done wrong things, and I have no idea how to make myself right with God. I don't know how to be reconciled with God if I've done these things, sins of the heart, sins of the mind, sins of what I've, things I've said, things I've done that I wish I could take back. If you're willing to admit that those dark things have happened, those things that are in you, and you don't know how on earth am I going to be reconciled to God, you're in an unbelievable place if you're just willing to admit that there is sin in your life, in your mind, off of your lips, in your heart. Just admitting that you're a sinner is an unbelievably large step. That these religious elite can't take it. They can't do it. And you didn't see the blind man ever struggling with that idea. He didn't say, he didn't say hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? Yes, sir, I, I want to believe in him. I, I am, I'm God. Oh, that's cool that you're God, but I happen to be pretty awesome too. Have you seen my resume? That's not how he responded. He responded by falling on his face and worshiping him as God. Because this, it's not just that he revealed himself and says, I am God. He has proven his love over and over um, in, a, in a big way to this guy um, by healing his eyes. He's shown his power. He's shown his mercy. He's come after him. He's walked in, into relationship with him after he's been cast out of all society. And the man responds with worship. And that is, if you're not a Christian today, that's an opportunity that you have today. Like You're not guaranteed your next breath. Neither am I. Today, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of him? And, and do you believe that God is calling you today? Do you believe that he's using even this story to pull your heart just a little bit closer to his? That the creator wants his creation back in right relationship with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus going to a cross in your place, in my place, to wash away our sins, do you believe that's a sufficient sacrifice? Because God the Father said it was. God the Father said to every, all of humanity, I will not hold your sins against you if you've chosen and embraced the forgiveness that my son offered to you. God the Father has said, I will not hold your sins against you. They're already paid for if you've cho chosen to receive that payment. If you've chosen to embrace Christ's cross as fully sufficient and perfect for washing away the sins of people. So I'm gonna tell you what you knew before this sermon, before you decided to come to church today. I'm gonna to tell you exactly what you knew I was gonna tell you. Trust Jesus. 
Love him with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Trust everything that he tells you. And the key, the core essence of what he has told you is that his death on the cross is what's gonna make you right with God, period, nothing else. Trust him. He has been so good to you, even though you didn't know it. He was serving you and loving you long before you were ever conceived. And today's the day that maybe you're finding out, or maybe today's the day where you're hearing it in a new way for the first time and it's resonating with you. Make a decision. This God has loved you so extravagantly. He loves you deeply. He has made an unbelievable sacrifice to reconcile you to himself. Make the decision to be a Christian. Make the decision to fall on your face and worship the way this guy does at the end of his story. There are people all throughout the Gospel of John that worship after they get their miracle. And there are some that worship even though they didn't get their miracle because their heart has decided Jesus is who he is. No matter what the circumstance, he is who he is. So I wanna call you to that same faith. John, who wrote this down 2,000 years ago, wants to call you to that same faith. I promise you that the life of following Jesus is hard. This guy gave up a lot to follow Jesus. It is not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Holy Spirit, would you give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone today? God, would you bring the full weight of the Gospel of John into the every mind and every heart that is listening to this message? God, would you give us a blessing that we might be transformed by it and turn around and be a blessing? Above all, we ask that you get your honor and praise and glory as people worship you the way you said back in John chapter four that the Father is seeking worshipers and we see you still doing it in chapter nine and we see you still doing it, God, in 2020. Please make it happen at ARCF. Make it happen today that somebody would love you for the very first time. Make it happen for our kids who are over in the Pringle building right now hearing about your goodness and your mercy. Jesus, make worshipers today. In your beautiful name we pray, God's people said, amen.